Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posy. A tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. It is one of the most famous children's rhymes and many believe that it's actually related to the plague. Is that true or is it utter nonsense? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. I do hope that you're having a fantastic August, whatever it is that you're getting up to. Please do let me know what it is that you've done over the summer because any bit of excitement is enough for me because I haven't really done that much. So we are continuing with our Folklore of Health and Medicine Month by looking at Plague Folklore. Now, somebody did ask if I would look at plague myths and coronavirus myths, but I kind of felt like the problem with the coronavirus myths is as it's an unfolding situation and due to the nature of the scientific method, things change all the time. So something that may look like it was a myth because it was something that's been revised, it, that that's not doesn't make it a myth. It just means that the scientists have more information and have been able to change whatever it is that they've said accordingly. So I thought I'm going to leave coronavirus alone because that's its own thing. However, there is an absolute bucket load of folklore about the plague. So I thought I'll do that instead. Obviously, a very different time period as well. And incidentally, there was that recent case of it. But of course, with plague now, we can cure it with antibiotics. So it's 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 not quite the killer that it once was. So we are going to have a look at Lots of things to do with the plague. And to be fair, for historians, the most devastating epidemic of all time is still that of the Black Death. And it reached Europe in October 1347, having previously affected Syria, Persia, China, India and Egypt throughout the 1340s. And the epidemic went on to kill more than 20 million people. So this is one of the reasons why it's kind of one of the most devastating that we've had. And its destruction then gave rise to much of the plague folklore that persisted into later outbreaks. But this is where we already start getting the plague folklore, because one example of folklore is its very name. Because some people use Black Death and Plague interchangeably. And it's one of those things where the Black Death is the plague, but not all plagues are the Black Death, if that makes sense. Because Pooja Gupta actually points out that the term Black Death did not initially refer to the physical symptoms of the plague, and people assumed it did because the gangrene caused by plague turns body parts black. And even though what we now call the Black Death sliced through Europe in the 14th century, the term Black Death only actually appears in the 16th century. And it basically came from a translation issue because Simon de Corvinus, the Flemish astrologer, wrote about the plague in 1350. And he referred to it as Mors Atra, which could mean either terrible death or black death. So the translator chose the latter and the name stuck. And then people have looked for a reason retrospectively why it will be called the Black Death. 
So it does refer to this very, very specific 14th century epidemic of plague. And the epidemic from 1665 is instead known as the Great Plague. So I'm going to use Black Death for anything related to the earlier epidemic and then the plague pretty much for like everything else. Because obviously there are other outbreaks in between 1347 and 1665. But we are going to move on to our first plague figure that has moved into folklore, that of the Plague Doctor. Now, the plague bacteria wasn't actually identified until 1894, and before that, people blamed a whole variety of things for causing the plague. Now, that could be God or the devil, astrology or bad air. And in ancient times, some even credited the god Apollo as being the bringer of plagues, hence the Roman adoption of his son Asclepius as their god of medicine during an outbreak, and obviously we met him a few episodes ago. Now, this bad air theory explains the famous plague doctor mask from the Great Plague period, where you've got this great long beak and sort of eye pieces, so it almost looks like it's wearing spectacles, but isn't. And sweet smelling plants were then stuffed into the beak. And in theory, the wearer couldn't get sick because he couldn't breathe the bad air. That was the theory behind it. However, it did obviously mean that he wasn't breathing in any of the kind of the spittle or anything from the person who was infected so it was helping but not for the reason that they thought it was and in actual fact the plague doctors had better protection from their overalls because they would wear these great long coats covered in wax so the wax leather overalls actually blocked the bodily fluids of those who were infected which then helped to lower the risk of infection for these doctors so this early form of PPE was essentially gloves, a hat, boots, this long coat and breeches. So essentially, it's what they're wearing that's actually stopping them from getting the plague, not the plague doctor mask. But then the mask obviously is what we remember from them. And the outfit is first mentioned by a French royal physician who donned this leather garb himself during a 1619 outbreak. And a German engraver then published an image of the setup in 1656. And this is the the part that kind of sticks in the mind because Paul first then turned this image into a piece of satire in the same year, called Dr. Schnabel von Rom, which translates as Dr. Beaky from Rome. And some people hated seeing the costume because it showed that sick people were nearby. But it's also this depiction that we recognise from the Carnival of Venice, because obviously you can buy these plague doctor masks in Venice. And the last time I was there, I kind of wish I'd bought one. But there is also some debate about this, because Winston Black says that there is some debate about which came first. So did doctors take their inspiration from this theatrical plague doctor for their PPE, or did the theatrical version appear after the doctors began to don this new protection? So we'll never really know without further evidence if it was life imitating art or art imitating life. But either way, it's just something to bear in mind. Now, obviously, we can't talk about plague doctors without talking about fairly dubious plague cures. And Joshua J. Mark explains that because no one knew what caused the plague, no one could actually cure it. And that didn't stop people from trying. There was a whole range of potions and pastes available. And then other people turned to practices like bloodletting or burning incense. Now, one of the most famous portions was that of Four Thieves Vinegar, and it contained a range of spices, including, but not limited to, wormwood, sage, rosemary and clove. And then these were added to a base of either wine or cider vinegar. Should point out that obviously wormwood was one of the original ingredients of absinthe. And thieves believed that drinking this mixture would make them immune to the plague so that they could either 
robbed the graves of those who died from plague or the homes of those who were afflicted by the plague and then, then they wouldn't get it themselves. Janine Mercer notes the tendency to lance the buboes or cut open the swellings and this was to allow the disease to leave the body and it sounds like it may not be the worst idea ever because it would allow pus and other fluids to leave the body and thus take the infection with it. Problem was, the next part of the instructions advised people to mix white lily root, tree resin and dried human excrement and then this paste should be applied to any cuts. So you're letting the germs in the pus out and then you're introducing new ones through dried faeces. As always, don't try this at home. There was also the Vickery method, named after Thomas Vickery, an English doctor. And with this one, you would pluck the rear and back of a healthy live chicken and then you would strap its bare back to the bubo of the sick person. And then when the chicken started to look sick, you would then take it off, wash it, and then strap it back on again. And you would basically continue this process until either the chicken or the patient died. And people did this because they thought that the chicken could draw the plague out of the victim. So it's a little bit like what we looked at with the elf shot a couple of weeks ago. This idea that you could use transference to take something away in another item, in this case the live chicken does it. People also did it with pigeons as well. But the thing is, regardless of all these weird cures, quarantine and isolation were still the only practices that really did anything useful. And the effectiveness of quarantine was actually spotted in 1348 when Ragusa, now known as Dubrovnik but then controlled by Venice, made incoming ships wait for 30 days in isolation and the practice was then extended to 40 days under the law of Quarantino, which is 40 days, which gives English its word quarantine. And during the Great Plague, King Charles II then issued a series of rules and orders to kind of use a form of quarantine but in people's own homes, and this particular one is found in the National Archives, and it says, and I quote, that if any house be infected, the sick person or persons be forthwith removed to the said pest house, sheds or huts for the preservation of the rest of the family. And that such house, though none be dead therein, be shut up for 40 days and have a red cross and Lord have mercy upon us in capital letters affixed on the door and warders appointed as well to find them necessaries as to keep them from conversing with the sound, end quote. So there was this idea of essentially shutting people up in their houses if there had been an incident of plague in that house. I should point out, if they got through the 40 days of being shut up and nobody else died, they would then have the Red Cross taken down and a White Cross put up for 20 days and then after that they were more or less free to come and go as they pleased. And I should point out that the practice of shutting up houses did inspire my short story, Abandoned Hope, which I will put a link to in the show notes and it is free. But of course, not everyone followed quarantine rules. I mean, really, like, look at what's going on now. You can imagine this going on even then. So wealthy people would flee to their country estates, taking the plague with them. And this idea actually also gave rise to Edgar Allan Poe's The Mask of the Red Death, which was later adapted for the screen by Roger Corman and starring the incomparable Vincent Price and Jane Asher as well. And then people who lived in cities often continue to behave as normal and even though shut up in quarantine would find ways to sneak out of the houses which essentially just carried the plague to others. Now other people would be looking to different supernatural causes so we've got all these ideas around God and bad air and all that kind of thing but in Norwegian legends we have the figure of Pesta and she appears as an old woman. She's known as the plague hag and she leaves the plague in her wake. And according to Janine Mercer, she carries either a rake or a broom. 
and if she's spotted with the rake, some may be spared the plague because they can slip through its teeth, but if she's carrying the broom, none shall pass. She's believed to travel on a rat-filled ghost ship, and given the belief in rats as plague carriers, that does make sense. And L.A. Dahlman relates a tale about Pesta in which she operated according to a set of rules. She's not quite as random as people imagine the plague to be. And in this story, she hails a boatman to carry her across a lake. And eventually, partway over, he realises who she is, and then he asks her to spare him. And he says that if she does so, he won't charge for the journey. She's carrying this great big book with her, so she consults the book, and then quite sadly says that no, she can't spare him but she will make it an easy death for him. And then when he gets home, he's so tired, like more tired than he's ever been. And then he dies in his sleep that night. So she does keep her promise. So having this book kind of indicates that she only takes the people that she's allowed to take, although she does have some degree of control over how she takes them. Now, Sandra Berger does explain this personification of disease as rational in the medieval era. And in that regard, it's not really a million miles away from the elves and the elf shot and so on in the Anglo-Saxon era. And people were doing the best that they could to create an explanation for something that they couldn't otherwise explain. And Berger notes that sea travel was a common mode of transmission for the plague. So again, given her this ghost ship helped to explain how this disease was being spread. Now, I couldn't do an article about plague folklore and not include the oft-repeated myth about a children's nursery rhyme and its link to the Black Death. And it is this one. It is Ring Around a Rosy, A Pocket Full of Posy, A Tissue, A Tissue, We All Fall Down. And if you haven't heard it, the theory runs that this particular rhyme is actually about the plague. The Ring of Roses is apparently the deadly rash that you get. The posies become the plague prophylactic, i.e. the herbs in the plague doctor's mask, and the all fall down refers to death. And it is, quite bluntly, nonsense. Stephen Winnick makes an excellent point that the first direct link between the rhyme and the plague only dates to 1951 and even the folklorists who repeated this link were unconvinced and to be honest it's not surprising because the symptoms such as the sneezing or the rash present very differently in bubonic plague to pneumonic plague and both of them were kicking around during these plague epidemics. And the problem is, adherence to the theory then stretched the rhyme to make it fit the theory, even though the evidence isn't really there. Winnick also points out that the rhyme didn't appear in English until 1881, so it's unlikely that a rhyme existed from 1665 until 1881, with no record being made of it. And on top of that, none of the late 19th and early 20th century folklorists who originally collected the rhyme mentioned any link with the plague, which, if there had been one at the time, they surely would have done. So to be collecting a rhyme in the 1880s and then for this link to not appear until the 1950s kind of does tell you that the the link is a tenuous one at best. Some people have even claimed that the rhyme dates all the way back to the 1347 outbreak of the Black Death, but David Mickelson does point out that if this were true, we would have Middle English versions of it as well, and we just don't. Now, incidentally, both Mickelson and Winnick note that the rhyme does exist all over the world. Not all the versions in other languages can actually be made to fit references to the plague because they just translate differently. And there are other variations of the rhyme in English which make literally no reference to the plague. And when you look at the actual game, after that we all fall down, people get back up again. So if it actually related to death, why, what does that say? You know, that this is the kind of thing where you've got to be careful about some of these, like, funny little myths that get attached to things. Because it is really, really unlikely that the rhyme has 
anything to do with the plague. But the fact that so many people believe that it does has become a form of folklore itself. And Winnick refers to this as meta-folklore because it's folklore about folklore. And it does become a fascinating example of what people choose to believe despite the evidence to the contrary. Now, this episode has touched on just some of the elements associated with the plague. And from the creepy plague doctor masks through to the bizarre cures, and I do use that in inverted commas, they indicate a human populace desperate for help in the face of an implacable foe. Now, we've seen similar myths play out in our own time, although, to be fair, we've apparently moved from the realm of the supernatural to the conspiracy theory. But even the plague pits of London gave rise to folklore of their very own. I will put a link in the show notes below to a blog post I wrote about the myths of the Charterhouse Plague Pit, which is in London. And the plague also gave rise to the famous tale of Eam, the Derbyshire village that put itself into quarantine. And the sacrifice of the villagers here inspired another story that I'd written, this was Paradise, which you can read in my Harbingers collection, which is available for free at the link below. Now, finally, this is my last point that I want to make, but there is a possibility that the belief that the rats spread the plague is also folklore, because a study from the universities of Oslo and Ferrara actually suggested that it was human lice that carried the disease, because there just weren't enough rats for it to spread as quickly as it did, and that also wasn't a corresponding huge mass death in the rat populations either. They were relatively unaffected by the plague, whereas it just seemed to be people. And other scientists have actually made a compelling case that the Black Death was actually closer to Ebola than plague. Further research is obviously needed into this, but in all honesty, considering the how it's embedded in our psyche, the idea that it was rats carried the the plague and blah, blah, blah. Would anyone really believe a different story, even if scientific evidence could prove it to be the case? We'll probably never know, but we will always have this plague folklore all the same. That is the end of this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I quite enjoyed researching it, to be honest, but I think you probably already know I've got quite a fascination for the history of medicine anyway. And I did actually visit Eam a few years ago and it's a marvellous, marvellous village. So if you haven't heard about Eam, spell E-Y-A-M, in Derbyshire, please do look it up. Uh, they put themselves into quarantine as an entire village and they were doing things like they would leave money for food in vinegar at the edge of the village and then other villagers would drop supplies off for them and so on. Like they really, really sealed themselves off which is something that I don't think you would ever have happen now. We are going to have a look next week at the folklore and superstitions around sleep because that was the one that won my fairly unscientific poll into what people wanted next. I will cover the doctrine of signatures at some point in the future, no doubt when I do another plant-based episode because it does obviously rely on plants. So we'll have a look at sleep and superstitions and we'll probably even go into the realm of the nightmare. I haven't looked at it yet, but we'll probably will. So I hope you enjoy that as well. If you are a Patreon supporter at the $4 a month level or higher, you will be getting your exclusive episode for August sometime in the next few days as well. So look out for that. And finally... If you're interested in spiritualism or urban legends around Ouija boards or just generally contacting the dead, then I am doing a talk for the Folklore Podcast in the Folklore Podcast Lectures series on September the 19th about such things. And I will put a link in the show notes below. It would be lovely to see some of you there. I do believe a replay is available if you can't make it live. So that would be cool. And otherwise, I think that's me blabbering on as much as I need to, really. So I hope that whatever you're doing, you have a marvellous few days, week, whatever. And I hope that you all stay safe and well and just generally lovely. And I will see you next week 
with the final episode in our Health and Medicine month. Cheerio! Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to subscribe using whichever podcast app it is that you prefer. If you do use iTunes, if you could leave me a review, that would be fab. Basically, it just means iTunes are more likely to recommend this to other people. And if you're interested in more folklore, please feel free to swing by my blog, which is www.icsedgwick.com, and that's Sedgwick spelled S-E-D-G-W-I-C-K. And you can find all of the links, images, and other bits and pieces that hopefully you enjoy. So have an absolutely fab week ahead, and I'll see you soon. Cheerio!